Hello and welcome to D23 Inside Disney, the show that gives you a look at the latest Disney news and a peek at the people who make the magic at the Walt Disney Company. I'm D23's Jeffrey Epstein. I'm Candace from Radio Disney. I'm Sherry from Oh My Disney. And we're your hosts who will take you Inside Disney. Well, our first episode of 2021 is here, guys. How are y'all? Uh, Out of the dumpster fire into 2021. <laughs> new year, new us. Yes. Although I, I'm the same. <laughs> oh, I'm 100% the same. Still wearing yoga pants, still wearing a hoodie. Same I wouldn't want you to change either of you at all. Oh, so thanks, Jeffrey. That is just perfect. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't know if you guys caught the premiere of The Bachelor, but it aired on ABC Monday night. I'm in for this season. If you guys haven't made a New Year's resolution, maybe you could make it to watch the season of The Bachelor on ABC. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, watching television is definitely a resolution I can work with. Oh, yes. yeah. That is achievable. Yes. <laughs> I was so excited for this season. If you guys don't know anything about Matt, he is the first Black Bachelor. He is a real estate broker in New York who also works with inner city kids. Wow. He seems really genuine, guys. So get on board if you like abs. There are lots of abs on the show. Ooh, I do like abs. <laughs> uh, wait, wasn't he also, he's like one of the first Bachelors to not have been part of like normal Bachelor shows. Is that right? I, I believe heard that that was so. Part of it. I, I think it's really so. cool. Yeah, yeah, he's very dashing. He's very dreamy. He is wow. also right after The Bachelor. The new game show we talked about last year was on The Hustler. This is my kind of game show. I feel like I want to play this with you guys. So if you have, I thought that was it. your nickname, Candace. Is that, <laughs> uh, am I missing something? Was that wrong? Take me to Vegas. We do call yeah. you Candace the Hustler. <laughs> yeah, quite often. Quite often. <laughs> Sherry, did you do anything Disney? Well, I, per usual, watched a lot of TV. My mm. couch and I became best friends yet again. <laughs> I was also on a reality TV kick. I have started watching Survivor on Hulu. And wow, it is so addicting. <laughs> I watched two seasons in like three days. I, I just couldn't stop. I felt like I didn't blink for 48 hours. <laughs> Did you get more than four steps in, though? Oh, right. <laughs> You know what? I actually did look at my step count one of those days, and I got seventy-five steps. Oh, perfect! Ooh, okay, I mean that's I up know. from like the fourteen that you had last time we talked. Exactly. Mm. New Year, better me. There you go. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, Survivor, highly recommend. There are also like forty seasons, so I'm set for a long time. <laughs> also, finally saw Soul, and wow, Yay. it was beautiful. Such a Pixar movie, you know? Like, only Pixar can create something so profound and Seriously. beautiful and watchable. It's just, it's so good. Mm. And Agreed. not to be overshadowed, Pixar's short Burrow. I also watched oh. that, and it's so cute. Oh, I need to uh, watch that. It made me cry. Aww. <laughs> It's so sweet. And of course, I finished On Point on Disney+. Plus. Ooh, Ooh, yeah. Well I, too, watched Soul again. I'd seen it prior to the holidays, and then my niece wanted to see Soul, and as you know, I do whatever niece Dylan wants to do. <laughs> I really liked it more a second time, which is not normal for me, but I really enjoyed it even deeper. I was able to appreciate a lot more of the nuance and the details, things that I hadn't noticed before. I loved it. So I highly recommend multiple viewings of Soul. And yes. I also just to make 
Dylan, you know, because Dylan had many things that she wanted to watch, but nothing as much as watching Jesse and Bunked on Disney Channel over and over again. Yeah. So she's also very excited for Secret of Sulphur Springs, which I think comes on next week. Oh, yeah. And Bunked, which comes back next week with Trevor Torgman, our multiple time guest here on the podcast. So very exciting. I watched Godmothered again with her. There was a whole lot of TV. Did she love it? Yeah, it's so good, right? She did. I really, really enjoyed that movie. I was, it took me to a very happy place. Mm. Watched the Disney Parks Magical Christmas Celebration with Julianne Huff, Titus Burgess. So just seeing the parks makes me so happy. Mm -hmm. And Sherry, like you, I also have been binging on point. I I have not quite finished. By next week, we can completely talks no spoilers okay will the nutcracker happen will it not happen i don't know (laughs) it is so great oh it is engaging i don't care if you don't care about dance if you don't know what a nutcracker is which both of those things i don't understand but (laughs) so good so engaging And, and i really felt like in a year where we we couldn't see the nutcracker in person this felt like a completely new way to enjoy that ballet and yeah, in fact enjoy ballet in general which i have a whole new appreciation for it as an art form oh my and a sport watching totally. these kids they're really athletes so definitely recommend that on disney plus coming up later on the show we have joe Rody, who was the executive designer and vice president of creative for walt disney imagineering he just retired this week we got his last interview and you do not want to miss some of the incredible things that he talks about, about, about building Expedition Everest, about being a part of the Mexico Pavilion and its creation, of being Dreamfinder, of the Adventurers Club. He has stories mm-hmm. and he shares them. He had tea and he spills it. So stay <laughs> tuned for that. But first up, we, we have some sad news at the top of the show. Our SVP of Government Relations, Richard Bates at Disney, he passed away on New Year's Eve. He was an incredible, incredible partner at the company for many of us. Um, He will be very, very deeply missed. Mm -hmm. And Disney legend Ron Dominguez passed on New Year's Day. He was the former vice president of Walt Disney Attractions, but potentially a lot more people know him because his family sold 10 acres of their orange grove and those 10 acres became part of disneyland what we know today and he actually started Mm -hmm. as a ticket taker at the park and worked his way up to that position of, of executive vice president so someone who really has incredibly deep deep connections ron and richard will both be deeply deeply missed Mm. so Sorry that we started on a bit of a sad note, but I definitely wanted to put it out there because they both deserve to be honored. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in a little bit brighter news, uh, Shanghai Disney Resort rang in 2021 by unveiling their fifth anniversary logo during their big and shiny and spectacular New Year's Eve celebration. Yes, they hosted a special New Year's Eve fireworks show. It's called Ignite the New Year at Shanghai Disneyland's Enchanted Storybook Castle. And of course, there were fireworks, there were projections, there were lights, and there was brand new music. There is also video online for all of us who are not lucky enough to be in Shanghai (laughs) Disney Resort right now. And the fireworks truly were spectacular. It's like, it almost seemed like it was daytime because it was so bright. And they unveiled this stunning new logo for the fifth anniversary, which will be in June of this year. 
The fifth anniversary logo features Shanghai Disneyland's iconic Enchanted Storybook Castle, and it's silhouetted against a blue meets pink meets purple meets orange number five, with, of course, added sparkles. It's <laughs> very, very my aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe it's been almost five years. I had the good fortune of being there for the opening of the park, and it is just beautiful such a an incredible feat of imagineering and creativity so mm-hmm. congratulations to our friends over there in shanghai yes i want to go so bad me too road trip yes <laughs> road trip. i'll drive <laughs> i don't know if you guys ever play golf when you're down at walt disney world mini golf mini golf <laughs> There you go. Well, Disney Golf is introducing RoboCart. So this is a small robotic golf cart. It uses GPS and Bluetooth tech to basically transport your clubs safely around the course. So you basically just clip this transmitter onto your cart. You load it on your golf bag, and then the autonomous cart follows a few paces behind you wherever you go, which sounds incredible. So if you stop, the cart stops. If you start walking... The cart starts moving. Don't be afraid, though. The max speed is like seven miles per hour. <laughs> so I just like want one of those to follow me around, so I don't, you know, feel so bored around walking around my condo. Like uh-huh. someone else there, like, "Hey, how you doing, RoboCart?" Exactly. <laughs> no. Well, you really want it because it's also equipped with all of the things you need to golf: a beverage cooler, Ooh. cup holder sand bottle and even a usb port so you can charge your phone while you play what? so that there's so that cool. jeffrey i like I it know. i need I to like see it will this. it make my bed and mop my floors and those are two <laughs> things i really could also use let me call someone at imagineering and see if if they can make that happen jeffrey. all right thank you. Um, thank you the robo carts are available at disney's oak trail golf course also at the 18 hole magnolia and palm championship courses they rent for 10 bucks in addition to your green fees, and if you guys want more details, check out golfwdw.com. And while we're talking about sports, let me just mention this. ESPN Plus has joined ESPN's first wildcard megacast during NFL's Super Wildcard Weekend. So coming up January 10th, the NFL wildcard game is happening between the Baltimore Ravens and the Tennessee Titans. This is going to air on a combined six Disney networks. So this is like the most extensive multi-channel NFL playoff game offering ever. So you'll see it on ESPN, ABC, ESPN2, Freeform, ESPN Deportes, and just announced ESPN+. Plus. So basically, take your personality, take what you like, tune into the network that suits you. So are you ready for this? ESPN Mm -hmm. and ABC, they're going to give the games traditional telecasts with the Monday Night Football team. Then Freeform has DJ Khaled performing on their broadcast, also a star-studded watch party throughout the game. And then ESPN Plus's Between the Lines, they're going to present the game in a more free-flowing, casual format. ESPN2, their film room analysts, they're going to have like the detailed breakdown of the game in real time. And then ESPN Deportes, of course, will have a Spanish language presentation. So this is going to be cool. I don't know how I'm going to pick one network. I'll probably just go between all six <laughs> and really compare them. How's that the ADD working out for you, Candace? I know, right? <laughs> I wish I had like the whole setup of like six different TVs in my house, like the sports bars <laughs> down in Orlando have. But <laughs> that's the dream. That's what we need in 2021. Six yes. TVs. <laughs> I know. Blah. <laughs> Well, Candace, as you enjoy that, I will be doing something else. 
But one thing I will be doing is preparing room on my shelf for D23's brand new collector set, which is going to be going to all new and renewing gold members of D23 this year. This gift was tailor-made for me by the fabulous (laughs) D23 team. And props to... Justin Arthur and Nan Song and the whole team who like put this together and put it out. So it is D23 celebrates 50 most magical years of the Walt Disney World Resort. It is amazing. As you all know, I am sure October 1st of this year will be the 50th anniversary of the Vacation Kingdom. Included in the set is a usable tin lunchbox, which pays tribute to a 1970s classic lunchbox, which I actually own. What? So even better than I'm going to have be able to have these next to each other. The new one has Mickey, Chip, Donald, icons from all of the parks and new things, classic things. It was designed by Kevin Kidney and Jody Daly, who are these brilliant Disney artists, if you don't know them already. In addition, there's going to be a set of five soft enamel pins, including the Orange Bird, Henry the Bear from Country Bear Jamboree, Rex from Star Tours, Figment, and of course, the Yeti from Expedition Everest. Those were also all designed by Kevin and Jody. There's a retro felt pennant designed by Brett Iwin, who we've had on the show, our friend, the official voice of Mickey Mouse, which the colors and the design are a tribute to some of the Disney World shopping bags of years past. And because I'm that crazy person, I actually own disney shopping bags of years past like why wouldn't what? i say shopping bags as well as the, <laughs> the there's an actual brand new seven inch pressed vinyl album that we're calling walt disney world then and now which has the bear band serenade from country bear jamboree on one side so something classic and nothing can stop us now guys oh, our fun song oh. Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Yes! That makes Uh, me so happy. Bring in (laughs) Shuby! It's playing in my head now. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Yes, and and there's much more included in that. You can visit d23.com slash collector set 2021 for all the details. I know I just rambled on, but I've been so excited about this. It is so cool. I'm finally happy that we've been able to reveal it to the world. So very, very exciting. Ah. Very cool. I can't wait to see what space you clear to make room for this set, Jeffrey. I'm telling you, I'm going to need to annex my condo. (laughs) Well, over in Marvel Studios news, a new WandaVision TV spot started airing this week. And let me tell you, it's a guess. Mm, (laughs) It is so fun. It's available on Marvel Entertainment's YouTube if you haven't seen it yet. And it debuts an original theme song written by Oscar-winning songwriters Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez of Frozen fame. Oh, wow. Woo-hoo. Yeah, they actually penned uh, unique songs for several episodes of WandaVision spanning from the 50s to the early 2000s. So I'm very excited to hear wow. their takes on these different time periods. Mm. So excited yeah. for that show. Me too. It's coming soon. It's coming to Disney Plus January 15th. Yay. Yay. Finish Survivor by then, Sherry. <laughs> oh, it'll happen. 
Well, I have a feeling we'll have more on that in next week's episode. Yes. And also, oh, I don't know if you saw, uh, but Lucasfilm debuted a trailer for Star Wars The High Republic, which is this whole series of novels, comics, and children's books. It's set 200 years before the whole Skywalker saga began. It's when Jedis were protecting the then uncorrupted Galactic Republic. But there is definitely something dark happening there. I watched the trailer. You can see it on StarWars.com. It looks incredibly cool, and it's all very interconnected, very much like how we've been seeing The Mandalorian going. I'm very excited for this new set of Star Wars stories. So check it out now. Nice. But before you do that, you know what it's time for. (gasps) What? I don't know. It is time for the first edition 2021 (laughs) of five fantastic things to watch this weekend. Courtesy of our friends at D23, the official Disney fan club. For complete details and listings, visit D23.com. Candace, what do we have first? Wow. Well, thank you, announcer guy. First, we have a new episode of Mira Royal Detective. This is uh, Friday, January 8th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Disney Junior, of course. My jam. So there's two episodes in this one, The Case of the Missing Library Book and A Double Dosa Mystery. So I'll be watching that one with Enzo for sure. And then Disney Fan Jam. It's new to Disney Plus, Friday, January 8th. This is the show hosted by Ariel Martin and Trevor Torgman, the big dance competition series that we all watched last year on Disney Channel. But now you can see it on Disney Plus. Nice, nice. And Sherry, before you and I sit down and watch WandaVision, Mm-hmm. Marvel Studios is debuting a new show on Disney Plus called Marvel Studios Legends, which in every episode, there's going to be taking a look at the heroes and villains who are making their way to highly anticipated streaming shows coming on Disney Plus. So, of course, the first one will be featuring Wanda Maximoff and Vision in preparation for WandaVision. And keeping to sort of a sci-fi fun theme on Saturday, January 9th, The Martian will be airing on FX, and I loved this movie. Matt Damon, yeah, he he plays an astronaut, ends up on Mars, has to survive. It is funny. It was way funnier than I thought this movie was going to be. Super, super smart. Matt Damon is terrific. So check that out on Saturday the 9th at 6 p.m. on FX Eastern Time. Never seen it. Okay. Very fun. And also this weekend, as Candace mentioned earlier, it's the NFL wildcard playoff game on Yay! Saturday and Sunday and all of the networks. <laughs> all the networks. All the streaming services. <laughs> so on to our very special interview. This legendary Imagineer came to the Walt Disney Company in 1980 as a model designer on Epcot. And through his remarkable career, he's worked on attractions such as Expedition Everest, Avatar Flight of Passage, and Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, developed resorts such as Elani, and overseen an entire theme park with Disney's Animal Kingdom. An avid world traveler, he was also instrumental in the creation of the Disney Conservation Fund, which has allocated more than $100 million to projects around the world. After 40 years, he's now retiring from the company, and we are excited to have him with us to talk about his remarkable career. Welcome to the podcast, Joe Rohde. Woohoo! Yay! Yay. Good to be here. (laughs) So great to have you here. It is truly an honor to talk to you, and congrats on your retirement. Can you talk about um, what led you to decide that this was the right moment? 
Well, really, it was the sort of 40 years. That's a nice round number. My 65th birthday and my sign-on time are very close to each other. So I thought all that sort of came together very nicely. And then, you know, the projects that I am working on are in pretty good condition. It's a good time for me to be able to step away without leaving a lot of confusion. And so I just thought, this is a time to do it. If I don't do it, it'll be like another seven-year cycle at which point I'll like be doddering out the door. So I thought this is a really opportune time. Oh, well, you started at Epcot as a model designer. So what did you work on for that park? My very, very first job was with the Mexico Pavilion. I worked on sculpting the pyramid that you see when you go inside. Actually, I wasn't a really good model builder, but I'm a pretty good sculptor. So I didn't get a lot of the stuff that was very square because not very good. (laughs) So, so I got the sculptural stuff and the pyramid was one of those sculptural things. And that was my first job that and all the other little textural things like the old Mexico ride had a cavern that I also did the sculpting for and several other of pre-Columbian sculptural things. So I was a model builder, but really almost a sculpting model builder. Wow. Wow. I love that you worked on that. I actually was recently at Walt Disney World at Epcot and had dinner in the pavilion and was gazing upon that exact pyramid. I had no idea. I mean, you are well known for Pandora and Alani and Animal Kingdom and on a lot of current projects, which of course we're going to talk about, but what were some of your favorite early projects that you were a part of? Oh, you know, I really did love working on the Mexico pavilion, partly because one of the team members was a archaeologist, for real. He was a consultant. He was an archaeologist. And so I got to learn so much from this guy just by asking questions, stuff that wasn't even published yet. That was one of my favorite projects for a long time. The Adventurers Club was really an interesting project. It's gone now, of course. But working on it at the time was It was sort of like a precursor to a lot of things that came later, kind of immersive theater, audience involvement, living characters, ongoing developing script, and all those things we were kind of experimenting with way back in the 1980s, on top of which I got to go shopping every week for all that stuff in the club, which was I was actually going to ask you about that a little bit later, but we can chat about it right now. We loved the Adventurers Club. It was one of my favorite places. I was curious, what was the seed of that idea? And then how are you seeing it live on today, even though it's gone? You can still see pieces and, and influence. You know, you know, when I started with the company, I didn't really know very much about Disney and I didn't really know very much about the core product. That's not, wasn't my motive originally. I wanted to be in production and I got this job. And so I tended to gravitate towards jobs that weren't necessarily connected to core product and to castle parks. And at the time, there was a whole bunch of jobs that were all around this idea of entertainment centers, nightclubs, outside the berm entertainment, all this stuff, a bunch of it. The one that got built was Pleasure Island. And I was very, very loosely connected to this. And I had a party at my house, which is like the wall behind me covered with artifacts and things. Rick Rothschild, who was producing the overall effort, came to me the following Monday. He's like, you know what? I got a job for you. We have this idea we want to work on. And it was sort of like a magic club, like a magic club nightclub that had some kind of adventurers club thing. That was the prompt. That's all we had. And so then I got to take it from there 
and run with it to figure out, well, what is that? What does that turn into? How does that turn into entertainment? What are we going to do with this idea? It was the first time I was really in charge of something from the very, very beginning to really make the decisions. What is it going to be? And the trick of it, I think, was that we knew most of the people who are going to come to this club have been in a theme park that same day. That's who's coming here. So they're going to have this preset of expectations based on that theme park. So the more we can break those expectations with what this club is and what it does, the more they're going to notice, the more it's going to surprise them, the more it's going to create this, I want to do that again kind of response. And so we rather deliberately played against expectation, like in a theme park, if there's an object on the wall and it comes to life and it talks, that's an audio animatronic, which means it has a script. There's a computer somewhere. It's running on a cycle. It's going to say the same thing again sometime later like dead men tell no tales. Except these objects on this wall were not audio animatronic. They were directly puppeted by a live actor who had just been in the room like three minutes earlier talking to you. So when that thing came to life, it knew who you were, it knew your name, it knew where you're from, it's having a conversation with you, a conversation that's never gonna have again, uniquely devoted to you. Nobody could figure this out. And the last thing in their mind was that it was a puppet with a guy behind the wall. So I would sit there in the club because I wasn't well-known, long-haired kid with earrings and listen to people discuss these theories of what they thought was going on, all of which were actually theories that would be impossible to do until now. Like, oh, there must be a computer that recognizes human speech and then it sends a signal to the figure like a <laughs> processor. It's like, he's just a guy with his hand up inside working the jaw. <laughs> That's real magic. Wow. Well, what is a project that you worked on that we may be surprised to know that you worked on? I was connected to a lot of things for little moments. Like I did one of the very first images of what eventually became the studio tour. The studio tour started out as a proposal for a pavilion at Epcot. And I did a rendering of what the facade of that pavilion would look like based on my own experience growing up on sound stages because my dad was a cameraman. And it was just a great big painted backdrop with a marquee coming out of it. And that was it. And that's somewhere, I think it's findable. It's in a book or something, but that I didn't stay very much connected to. And that went on. I did one figure for Splash Mountain. (laughs) No way. Which one? It's like an alligator that's fishing, like slung between these branches. I did that. Uh, (laughs) God, what else? I built the one inch scale model of the crystal pyramid for the imagination pavilion, which took forever. Um, (laughs) Gosh, gosh, over the years, I did the initial designs for the entertainment area outside of Euro Disneyland when it was Euro Disneyland, working with Frank Gehry. But it was a very different concept we were trying to base our concept on some earlier work by Frank Gehry, but when we engaged him, he was moving on to these big mega structure things that he did. But I did that, worked on the Wild West show that used to be there. I don't think it's there anymore. Wait, wait, you, know, you, you did mention imagi- imagination. What can you tell us about Dreamfinder? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, okay. So I was doing a bunch of voiceover for Epcot back in the day because we used to do that. Just have people do voiceover, right? And I can't even remember all the bad accents that I did to be these <laughs> and the producer came to me with this idea that I would do the Dreamfinder character 
for the Dreamfinder School of Drama, which was an interactive video green screen experience. Now, originally, I was going to just mouth the words and the other actor who was doing the Dreamfinder was going to deliver all those lines. So then they were just like, no, no, you're just going to say it. You're just going to be the Dreamfinder. <laughs> say all the lines, kind of like in that voice and be the Dreamfinder. And so I spent, you know, weeks and weeks in this sound. <laughs> green screen, putting on makeup with a big red beard. And when you work as an Imagineer, these jobs come and go all the time. You know, you're drawing illustrations or models or some participation in something all the time. Wow. Well, for Aulani and Disney's Animal Kingdom, you really worked hard to be as authentic as possible to the cultures you represent and also the connection to the planet. Even with Pandora, it was all about connecting to nature. So how did you find yourself working on these kinds of projects? Well, it started with Animal Kingdom. Animal Kingdom was kind of an assignment from Michael Eisner. He wanted us to do something to do with animals. But of course, no theme park had ever been based on animals. And the rule book for how to do a theme park didn't match up very well with animals. Right. So it really started with the analysis of how could we ever take this system, the theme park system, and everything that it represents, and what we would have to modify and change to get it to work with animals. And one of the things that was gonna have to happen, and you mentioned the conservation program years ago, was a very serious commitment to wildlife conservation. If you wanna do this, there is no way to do it without making a serious commitment to education and conservation. So that set some wheels in motion for a design culture that was really based on research, based on science, based on collaborating with people outside the company who had knowledge and interests separate from our own. And that made it possible to do a category of work that wasn't really based on our own intellectual property. It's really based on ideas that come from the world. And because of that sort of baptism of fire that was Animal Kingdom, when Aulani came along, we kind of had a group of people who understood how to take who it is we are as designers, as storytellers, and what it is that might be this outside thing, in this case, Hawaiian culture, and how to ask the questions and how to listen for the answers so that you could create something that was truly original and really coming from the culture, not coming from us looking at the culture. It's mm -hmm. sort of important when you say that something is authentically Hawaiian, what makes it authentically Hawaiian is kind of that Hawaiians did it. And so we really needed to open this up in a way that the project would be facilitated for a very, very high level of collaboration between ourselves as technical experts and the Hawaiians as subject experts. Speaking of Animal Kingdom and, and being culturally authentic, not just to our own planet, but to other planets, how familiar were you with Avatar before you started working on Pandora? Well, I saw the movie, and actually, I said this before publicly, no secret to this. When the company announced that they wanted to do an Avatar-based land, I was writing a bunch of memos going, this is crazy. You guys are crazy. <laughs> I mean, I know that's a great movie. I know it's a big hit movie, but look at what is in that movie. The principal characters are like 12 feet tall. Everything floats. The atmosphere is poisonous. Imagine having to build this. CGI is one thing, and that took years and was really expensive. Now imagine you have to build this out of real materials. We don't know what those materials are yet. All the engineering, we don't know what that engineering is yet. 
you know, crazy. They were like, well, then you're the perfect guy for this. I know, I think that's right. I totally think that's exactly right. They're like, oh, well, you thought about it, so you get to do it. Um, so, so then you have to go, okay, okay. So if we're gonna do Avatar, then Avatar at Animal Kingdom is not a bad connection. It's pretty good. The movie has the same underlying thematic goals as Animal Kingdom. It is a moral lesson about responsibility to a planet about indigenous people, about animals, wildlife, nature, and responsible and irresponsible ways of being in the world of nature. So when we first sat down with James Cameron and John Landau, the producer, I basically explained this point of view. So look, Animal Kingdom has a whole thing. It is about something. And the thing that it's about is like what Avatar is about. So rather than making this land be about the movie, and what happened to characters in the movie. We need to make it be about the world of the movie and what the world has to teach us about our world. And they were like, well, that's why we made the movie. So we're totally there, let's do that. <laughs> they were very, very cooperative partners in collaboration on this. And we were able then to take the germ of the ideas from the Avatar movie and turn it into a place that is itself somewhat new, somewhat new to discover. Even if you saw the movie, there's stuff in this world that you never saw in that movie. So you're still something to discover. Mm. Totally. I'm curious what attracted you to working on Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, because with all the rock music and the comedy, it's kind of a departure from what we were just talking about, Pandora and Aulani. So what attracted you to that project? So at the time that that happened, I had been asked to take the Marvel portfolio for a while and to do that same kind of homework of like, what can this thing mean? What are we doing with this? What does Marvel mean to us? What do we mean to Marvel? What is this thing that we now have and how do we make it have meaning that is relevant to us? And so I was doing that work at the time on the side because it was mostly conceptual work, right? And along comes this thing of like, hey, we really need a major attraction to open in this window at the Disneyland Resort, which is not very far away. So we want you to take Tower of Terror and find an overlay we can do so we can open something big and, you know, it'll be good for us. So I have to think, Marvel, what could go into it? We ran a couple ideas, you know, like, well, we could do Doctor Strange. That would work really, really well in what almost what Tower of Terror is. Spider-Man, like, Spider-Man needs like some space, you know, it's a different kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. And then Guardians. And I was looking at the building, you know, sometimes actually, I, very often for me, my initial response is that's impossible. That's a dumb idea. But then you have to like work your way through that. So I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking at the building. I'm walking around, looking at this building. Go, you know what? Now I'm talking specifically about the California Tower of Terror. There's only a certain number of details on that building that make it look like a hotel. I could count them on one hand. If I pop those details off, I have a generic thing and I can make that generic thing look like anything. Hmm. I bet I could make it look like something from the world of the Guardians, either from the film or from the comic books. So I think it's Guardians. So then we go in with, if it's Guardians, that's a whole different emotional tone. It's not like Tower of Terror. It's not the same emotions. What are the emotions? How do we evoke these emotions? And I always believe this, no matter what the brand is, no matter what intellectual property you're working with, in a sense for a designer, 
you still have to do all the homework you would do anyway. Go all the way to zero. If somebody knows nothing, nothing about the Guardians of the Galaxy, nothing about Marvel, they have to look at this building and they have to be able to guess certain things. Like, hmm, that kind of looks like a fortress or like a prison. And then... <laughs> But it also has this like blingy, nouveau riche kind of quality about it. <laughs> like, and there's a lot of pipes. It looks like a power plant. So even if I don't know anything, it's like there's a lot of power being consumed. Somehow it's about power. And it's, here's a creepy thing, right? So then you go inside and then you're like, you don't know anything, right? All you know is now I'm watching a screen and there's a guy with white hair and nobody likes him. And then there's these other people and they seem kind of charming. And then there's a raccoon and he's trying to get out. And I like those people and I don't like that guy. And there's a bunch of stuff in boxes and those people are in boxes. So I bet he caught them and put them in boxes. Mm -hmm. Then you go in a room and the raccoon pops out and tells you, hey, here's what you're gonna do. I need your security pass from your hand and we're gonna go bust my friends out. You don't need to know his name. You don't need to know anything right? You just know what the story kind of is. But the other thing you're getting out of this is there's this oddly irreverent quality to everything that is happening. <laughs> there's an oddly humorous, oddly irreverent quality to this whole gig. So you have to keep paying that off, right? Because that's really the feeling of the Guardians, not the plot line. The plot lines will go on forever. The feeling stays the same. It's humorous. It's actually very warm, very affectionate. It's very funny and it's very energetic and it's very irreverent. And so we have to hit these notes. If this thing is gonna feel like Guardians of the Galaxy, forget about the plot line of what happened in the last movie. It has to feel like them. Everything has to feel like them. And that's the work that we were really trying to do with that project. Wow. Well, you've certainly succeeded with that. It's fun. It's really yeah. fun. It's I mean, amazing. I think that's a super fun ride. Yeah, it, I love you, it. I mean, I could go on about that for like an hour. Just <laughs> a lot of little details that we put in there that, that really are why it seems to work so well. Wow. I well, always hope to get Pat Benatar. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take things overseas. The mysterious Harrison Hightower from Tokyo Disney Sea's Tower of Terror <laughs> bears a striking resemblance to you. What did you think when you first saw the portrait of him? Oh, it's very weird. It's very, very, <laughs> that all started from like one architectural detail. On the outside of the building, there was one carving of a scowling face that was gonna be above a window. That was it. And they're like, you have a great scowl face. So we, <laughs> we wanna copy your face for this carved head above this window, the end. And then like four months later, like, you know what? Now that we have that face, we kind of need you to pose for this window and then for these photographs and then for this mosaic and then for these murals. <laughs> but pretty soon I became the model for this character. And as the character developed, it just started looking more and more like me, less and less like, it's like, that's just me. That's me. <laughs> Wow. And so when the project opened, I was doing Mission Himalayas, which was just closing out Expedition Everest. 
And I came back and I literally flew in from the Himalayas, went up, shaved my big nasty beard off and got a phone call <laughs> that was like, hey, you need to fly to Japan. Don't shave your beard because <laughs> we need you to play Harrison Hightower in the commercials for, oh. so I like flew to Japan and had a director and shot these commercials wow. of me as Harrison Hightower, <laughs> grossly overacting. It big looked like the one I'd shaved off. But the whole thing kind of started from a whim of just, just needing my face. And so now when executives from Japan come to our building and they see me, they don't see, <laughs> oh, that's Joe Rody, the earring guy who did Animal Kingdom and like Alani and Avatar. No, 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 they're like, oh, that's Harrison Hightower. We have to go take a picture with Harrison Hightower. Very, very weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I had a guy stop me in Paris in the Musée d'Orsay, who was like a Japanese designer of some kind. Like, Aren't you Harrison Hightower? Like, no way. I'm Harrison Hightower. <laughs> yeah, so it is, it's kind of weird. Wow. I'm wondering if you've thought about this over the last couple of weeks or so, but if you had to pick a favorite project you've worked on, what would that be? Oh, God. I really loved working on Expedition Everest because I love the Himalayas. I love Thank you the for that, by the way. That is one of my favorites. <laughs> there are many, many places in that ride that really are exactly as if you could be in northern India or Nepal or Tibet. I'm very real seeming. The details are really, really good. So I always like walking around that area. But I probably have to say Aulani because what's interesting about Aulani is the sociological impact of doing something like that. There really hadn't been a major resort of that scale devoted so exclusively to this idea of indigenous Hawaiian people and what they have to say. And so its impact is very interesting, you know, what it causes people to think, what it causes them to say. And because of that, I think that's probably the one that I will look back on and go, that was a unique project. Wow. Oh. Okay, well, what is one attraction from any time period that you didn't have the chance to work on, but you would have loved to? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I uh, imagine it's a pretty narrow list. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've never, oh no, it's not. There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I think it would have been fun to work on the Indiana Jones ride. I didn't work on that. Well, actually, that's not true. I did do some of the very, very, very first illustrations for that concept before it was Indiana Jones. Oh. Uh, but that's another whole story. Never worked on a Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and Pirates of the Caribbean is my favorite attraction. Never worked on a Haunted Mansion. I've really almost never worked in a castle park. So you could pick almost any attraction in a castle park I didn't do those things. I wow. saw all these years went by. I did the Pinocchio ride at Fantasyland in like 1982. And I was just a scenic painter. And I did Captain EO, but I, you know, you could almost pick anything at Disneyland. I didn't work on it. So a lot of those, but I do kind of love the big show-based rides like Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion. So I probably would say one of those. Mm -hmm. Definite favorites. 
you've done a lot of experiences and events with D23, for which we are very, very grateful, from panels at the Expo to our Destination D events at Walt Disney World, the fifth anniversary of Alani. What has it meant for you to be able to connect so closely with D23 members who are some of the biggest fans of your creations? I'm very grateful that I would be the lucky guy who gets to be recognized in this way and then just washed over and over again with all these good feelings from people, which in fact, I don't entirely deserve any more than all the other Imagineers who have also done this work, but are just less recognizable, have spent less time in front of a television camera. Uh, so it's a great privilege to have been the recipient of just all this amazing goodwill. Mm, I love that. What's the greatest lesson you've learned working as an Imagineer all these years? I think it is that before you start to make decisions, you have got to do a tremendous amount of work on the fundamental reason why you are doing this at all. You will lose yourself in micro decisions if you do not first sit down and figure out what is this whole thing actually about? What are we trying to say? What does it mean? What's the emotion? What's the moral? What is this thing about before you start to make the other decisions or very quickly you get swept away by detailed decisions and they don't add up. Hmm. Who would you say inspired you most during your time here? You know, when I was young and I first got here, there were all kinds of guys from Walt Disney's era, including Herb Ryman. And remember, I didn't know very much about the legacy. I didn't know these people. I'd seen the movies, but it's not like I came here with some, oh, all my life I wanted to work for Disney or for Imagineering. I came because I needed a job in production and I needed a job. But I fell in with Herb Ryman in particular very early because he was very good friends with the guys doing the Mexico Pavilion. And I would end up over at his house a lot. And you know, when we think of Herb Ryman, you think of the artist Herb Ryman, the guy who draws, the guy who drew Disneyland, an artist who draws. But you go to his house, it was crammed with books, crammed with books, old books, big books, art books, research books, history books, a lot of books. And to me that modeled, I knew that this is a guy who did go to Angkor Wat, like lived at Angkor Wat with the monks in the ruins, did travel around the world, did sketch in the field and had all these books. And that wow. all of that together is what makes that Herb Ryman guy, the guy who could draw a Disneyland park in one weekend. Cause you know, he's not running away from that table every 20 minutes to go open some book somewhere. Those books are in his head now. And so my habit of research as part of design is really partly inspired by Herb, Harper Goff as well, who both were heavy research people. So what is the first thing you're planning to do when you're officially retired? Well, pack, I'm packing, I have to pack. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm trying to, you know, prepare myself for all the other things that are going to happen as I retire, probably, you know, eventually moving out of this house, which would take time uh, because of the packing of all the stuff. Unfortunately, kind of depends on COVID and what 
opportunities open up. I would love to get back to doing more wildlife connected expeditions with the Explorers Club. You guys know I'm in the Explorers Club mm -hmm. and I have opportunities through the Explorers Club to be involved in some interesting conservation related expeditions. I would love to be able to get back into that, but that's going to take some time because of the travel restrictions and things. But that's probably the most personal thing that I want to be able to do is devote some time to this wildlife conservation stuff that takes real time. You want to go to the Himalayas, you really need at least four weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go to Nepal, you can go to Kathmandu in 10 days and be back. You can't get to some village that's like, you know, 14 days walking back up into the mountains unless you have 30 days. And that's if you want to spend a few days in that village. So it takes time to be in these places. It takes time to be in Mongolia. It takes time to be in the Himalayas. It takes time to get off the beaten path in Guatemala or any of these places. So the time to do that is one of the things I look forward to. Wow. Well, you'll have all the time in the world <laughs> to explore hopefully soon. I do intend to work. I mean, I am going to look for interesting jobs that are not like what I have done to, mm. to do work. Otherwise, I think I would get kind of bored. I'm going to really try to manage that time carefully between work work and this sort of personal work of conservation. Well, it has been such a privilege to talk to you, Joe, or should I say Harrison Hightower? <laughs> we end every interview by asking our guest, what is their favorite Disney memory? And I imagine you have millions, but if you had to pick your very favorite, what would it be? It, you know, it's not a memory that a guest can replicate. It has to do with Disney's Animal Kingdom. And in the Weeks before we brought the animals to be on the African savanna, that entire savanna was planted, it was finished, it looked like Africa. And the grass was between 18 inches to four feet tall, all these different species of grass, trees, ponds, and it was full of wildlife. The native wildlife of Florida, there were hawks hunting and herons and frogs and doves and everything out there. And I used to take my mountain bike every evening before I went home and I would ride that ride path, the whole entire ride path of the African safari. And there'd be like thousands of birds flying out of the grass and, you know, falcons hunting and, you know, millions of tadpoles in the water. And I thought, you know, this is a thing that not only I, but nobody will be able to ever do again, ever in the history of the park once this starts. And it was so real seeming and really magical and really beautiful and very, very special thing that I think is really, truly one of my favorite memories of my career. Wow. wow. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. Congratulations on 40 amazing years and we cannot wait to see what the next chapter in your life is. Well, thank you very much. Wow, he is such an amazing storyteller. And uh, those are some stories that I had not heard before. Um, I thought I'd heard everything. Uh, he, he's gonna be much missed, but he's contributed so much to the Disney legacy. So we're so, so happy to have had yeah. him as a part of the Walt Disney Company.
We are. Well, thanks again for listening to D23 Inside Disney. Don't forget to like and share this episode wherever you listen or subscribe. And if you want to chat with us, just use the hashtag D23 Inside Disney. And of course, for all the latest Disney info, check out D23.com. We'll be back next week with more Disney news and a fantastic guest on an all-new episode of D23 Inside Inside Disney. Disney.